Dr. Brian Violet, welcome to The Tangent. I'm really glad to have you on today. Thank you very, very much for having me. We're excited to be here. Well, it's fun because I'm flying solo today, and uh, so you're keeping me company. And nobody wants to hear me just talk for an hour, so this is going to be this is going to be great. Well, that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> well, I figure you know it's 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 all good. Yes. Uh, let's go in a little bit just to the background of, of who you are and uh, how you came to this position. So you are a Catholic psychologist, I am. clinical director. For the Catholic Psych Institute, do I have the title you right? You do not actually. I was I, don't. I was once clinical director. Ah, so I uh, I I directed our clinical team for a while before we started the uh, CP Map, uh, which yep. is our program to train people in our mentorship model. Uh, and then we had a Dr. Gerard uh, slide into that position, and I was promoted to digital operations director, a mm. job at which I failed absolutely. It's <laughs> really. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was, uh, it was not my zone of genius. Uh, mm-hmm. I really struggled with that. Um, and so Dr. Greg and all his wisdom, um, you know, continued to work with me to find the perfect niche for me at Catholic Psych. And, uh, eventually I landed on more of a personnel position, which makes sense for a clinical psychologist. And now I am the chief of staff. Gee, okay. And I'm also, I knew it was- I'm also dean of students. The CP map, apparently. <laughs> Somebody's got to be Dean. I knew you were in charge of something. Is it bad that I, I thought you were a uh, clinical director and Dr. Gerard, who is my mentor mm-hmm. uh, and my supervisor when I did the CP map, is the clinical director and I <laughs> didn't connect that? No. Is that bad? No, I don't think it's bad because- You're going to take away my certification now? No, like, no, no. I think in some ways there's a fence between regular CPI and the CP map program and you know, and sometimes staff mm. members don't know exactly what's going on on the CP map side, and then CP map students don't know exactly the inner workings of Catholic psych proper. So you get a pass. Thank you, I, I appreciate that. And, and I won't okay. tell him. I'm sure he won't hear this. <laughs> I don't know if he listens. I mean, we might we might have to make him a listener. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, uh, but you're also the host of the Catholic Sinner Show. I am. Yes. Tell me a little bit about the Catholic Center Show and uh, and what you're aiming oh, at. And then I want to go, come back to being a Catholic psychologist and just the the adventure that that has to be. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Catholic Center Show. So I'm not really sure where to begin. I think, you know, when you, when you start a YouTube show, they tell you to niche down. So to get a very small audience and then build from there to find your, your tribe with your vibe. And um, <laughs> I completely rejected that direction. <laughs> so it's, it's, nice. it's generally broad. I would say... I want to find a place for those people in the world who are not quite on board with living the Catholic faith, but are still Catholic. That's who I want my audience to be, the people on the margins and uh, people that are interested in um, things that aren't always explicitly Catholic, uh, but may discover Christ in them. I think, of course, but the number one model for me is Lord of the Rings, of course, which is, I mean, of course, yeah, I mean, there's God, he's all over it. Jesus is all over that work, you know, but he's, <laughs> he's not mentioned by name. Uh, and then, um, but I guess I wanted to create a place where uh, that's, that's sort of anti-cancel culture because I um, mm-hmm. can't stand, it's probably my own trauma, but one of my own uh, issues is I hate being walled off from people. I hate it. Get cut off. I, I can't stand it. And there's just so much discord and unrest in the world today. 
And um, I wanted to create a place for people to come and share whatever perspective they have, uh, Catholic, non-Catholic, left, right, up, down, horizontal, uh, every letter of the alphabet, whatever it is. Um, and we can just come together and still stay connected because there's lots of people that I love in my life that aren't living a Catholic faith and don't want to feel like I've left them behind. I want to connect with them on a human level. Mm -hmm. And um, so, yeah, so so I have the guests come on and we talk about their personal interests. First of all, got to warm them up, got to butter them up before I hit them with the hard questions. And then we do an integration section, which is um, psychology and faith, the integration of those two and ask what their perspective is on those things. And you get some wild answers there. And then we have a section called uh, mm. Sinner in a Movie. So I have to watch a movie that they make me watch. And then we talk about it. Everybody wants to share their favorite everything with others, right? Your favorite song, your favorite movie. So that's, that's really how I get the guests. I hook them. They don't want to talk about okay. religion or, or politics or anything, but they, they want to <laughs> talk about movies. So they're willing to suffer me for two segments before we get there. That's awesome. Well, I'm I'm excited about this. So you've just now given me the preview of like the stuff I'm supposed to expect. Yeah. I've I've only seen the show so far with the um, uh, what what do you call the the segments that you put out individually? Snapshots. The snapshots. Yeah. So I've seen your snapshots. I haven't seen uh, an episode all the way through. Yes. Not, ma uh, not so many. Not many people seen, have. I've seen the pieces. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Because okay. I mean, there is an audience for long form content. You know, that'll sit down for it two hour Joe Rogan podcast or something. Um, but there's just such a variety of, of viewers out there. So what, what I found cool about YouTube is that you can put a long form uh, piece out, an episode out. Um, but a lot of times people watch YouTube for 20 minutes. So that's where the idea of the snapshots came. And then I have shorts for the people that are just scrolling on their phone at night when they sh should have been in, in bed like 30 minutes before. So it's, you know, <laughs> I really try to reach as many audience members as possible. And that's what the snapshots are. They're just kind of highlights from the main episode. Most people don't even really sit, sit down for two hours and listen to the main episode. They watch the snapshots. Well, yeah, that's what I'm thinking. I've, I've seen the snapshots. So I, I've had an idea of kind of where you go, mm. but I'm, I'm really curious because I gave you my movie and you did. Uh, I can't wait to talk about it with you. I've seen it. I'm ready to talk about it when you come on. Oh, sweet. Okay. So folks, you're going to have to go over to the Catholic Center show and watch my episode with Dr. Brian then. Yes. Uh, and find out what my movie was. Yes. What? So I'll ask you here though. Yeah. And then I'm going to ask you again when, when we when we do it in person. Sure. Were you surprised by my movie choice? Was I surprised? I, I, mean, I didn't have any expectations for what your movie was going to be. So I wouldn't say I was ah, surprised. Okay. Um, uh, I have questions for you. I have many questions for you Great. about it. Awesome. Oh, so yes. good. Okay. Yes. I'm really excited. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, no, I, I, yeah, that's, that's great. That's great. I, I have a controversial thing with movies. Um, one of my, actually one of my mentees is after me still, uh, she is very upset that I've never seen the sound of music. <laughs> and so she's after me all the time. You have to see it. You have to see it. And at this point, I just I won't see it as a point of principle because I love the reaction it gets when people find out that the priest hasn't seen The Sound of Music. They just assume that I must love it. It must be my favorite movie. I, there's like a close connection with Catholics in Austria these days, isn't it? Because the, all the Franciscan Catholics that go over there for a semester and oh yeah, yeah. they they love the Austria. I was in Rome. I, I mean, I studied over there, but I, I'd gone back for some reason. I don't remember why I was there. And I was walking down the street and I had my Diocese of Bridgeport jacket on. And there was a group of Franciscan students 
from Franciscan University of Steubenville who are on their Rome pilgrimage from the, the Austria campus. And they're walking towards me and this girl walks over to me and she goes, you're from the Diocese of Bridgeport. And I said, yeah. And she goes, my brother's going to be a priest in the Diocese of Bridgeport. And I said, who's your brother? And it was a seminarian who had been at the parish with me the summer before. Oh, wow. Uh, it's a sm- <laughs> so it's just this really small world. Like, walking down a street in Rome, I meet this girl who I've never seen before. <laughs> and her brother was seminarian and he was in my parish. Yeah. So yeah, small Catholic world. That's that's kind of the fun of it. Well, too. I'm on- Do you find that actually as you're doing this this new show that you're meeting or talking to Catholics and then discovering or talking to non-Catholics but discovering maybe some of the places where they like they've actually touched in with people who you know through your work through through Catholic circles and everything? Um, not yet. I don't I, I don't have that many episodes out yet. I mean, I think we're mm. as of today, I don't know when this is going to air, but I have think I have like six that are live full episodes which is like six weeks work. Okay. I, I launched on December 8th, 2023. Yeah. So most of my early guests are people that I know that I find to be interesting. You know, I, I you know, stay tuned for Bishop Barron, but I, I haven't, you know, I haven't gotten Jordan Peterson on the docket yet. <laughs> so, um, but I think, I think no matter how successful the show becomes, I always want to have a mix of guests that are non-celebrities, you know? In fact, I'm, you know, yeah. For all you listeners out there, uh, for the for the Catholic Center show to keep going, I they it has to have interviewees. It's not just me talking into it's an interview show. I'm not just talking into the camera. So um, what I'm doing is opening things up. Um, it's kind of like in a small part of the of of the YouTube channel. Now you can find it in descriptions and things. But um, I've created an application for people to be on the show. Oh, that's yeah. cool. So anybody that wants to be on the show can apply, and you know maybe they'll maybe they'll be a guest. So. Um, no matter what, if I if I have Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio one week, I want you know Joe Mailman the next. That's awesome. Yeah. I like that idea. You could get some pretty wild things coming in. Then that's why we have an application. <laughs> <laughs> I listen. I'm a trained psychologist that's trained in assessments. I know the right questions <laughs> to ask. That might open things up for me to get a sense of how stable someone <laughs> is or is not. Uh, and then, you know, we can always, like, I don't have to use the content if it's, if it gets wild, you know? Right, right. I like, so c- come back to this idea of just talking to people about w- whatever, mm. but also then kind of posing to them uh, maybe a question about, about their faith, yeah. about their, their spirituality and, and how they connect. Because you're right, there's so many people out there who have no real connection in their faith. No. So many people who are, are struggling or who are, uh, in some way feeling alienated yeah. um or if not feeling alienated indifferent yeah it's it's been it's um, been such an interesting uh experience so far in that respect i mean my first guest was dr greg bataro who i mean you know has papal underwear that he wears you know i mean he's he's very catholic <laughs> uh and then my next guest was the, um the best man in my wedding who whom i knew to be okay. before the episode a staunch Greek Orthodox Christian until okay. on the episode, he told me he was now an atheist oh, on wow. the episode. And then I've had other guests where um, you get, you get a little bit of, um, get a, you get agnosticism is pretty popular nowadays. So I'm not sure, you yeah. know? Um, and I, and then you get the spiritual, but not religious type. Mm-hmm. That's common. Um, I had, I had so uh, one of my guests really thought about how like, thought for the first time about their spirituality when I asked 
the probing questions. You know, they would say, I don't believe in a personal God, but I pray every night on my knees. And it takes something as simple as to whom mm. for them to start really thinking that question through. I, I don't know who I'm praying to. And, you know, wow. and, 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 you know, they believe that their loved ones, they'll see them after they die. So there is some sense of personhood beyond the veil, but they don't believe in a personal right. God and they're praying to some. So these questions, I mean, there was like a, they hadn't worked these things out. And I think the show is helping some people at least ask the right questions when most of the time they're so busy, they don't, they don't have an opportunity to sit and ask the right questions. Yeah. How do you think they, they understand the idea of personal God? Do they think it means like my personal conception of God or do they, are, are they thinking in the more metaphysical sense of like what God is, who God is? Uh, well, I, I can't speak for all the, for the, I try to explain what I mean by that when I'm talking to a guest. I, 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 when I said, do you believe in a personal God? And the guest looked at me a little funny and I said, do you believe that there is a, a God who is a person outside of space and time who hears and loves you personally? He cares about you and knows you and and loves you and is concerned about your returning to him. And he said, no, I don't believe that. Okay. So I tried to describe it in that way. And then he posed the question back on me a bit because I wanted to be dialogic. I don't want it to be just an interview. I like to go back and forth a bit conversational. It's more fun yeah. that way. And uh, I said, I mean, I had to get real explicit, more explicit than I'm accustomed to being around a certain group of my friends, certainly on online for people to see and say, you know, I believe in, you know, a Trinitarian, I mean, got all specific, a Trinitarian God, father who sent his son to, to die for my sins, et cetera, et cetera. And I, and I got real Catholic on him. So that was kind of unique when in some ways those relationships are partitioned for me, but, and, and are the reason why I started the show, because I think everybody has someone they love that's not practicing and want to create a space to have conversation with them. Yeah. Do you? So what's it like for you when, when you're sitting there and, and you're explaining that, like you're giving witness to your faith to people who, you know, friends of yours, uh, but you're doing it in, in a way because, well, you're, you're trying to both evangelize them, uh, but also make that connection uh, like the, on the, on the personal level. So like they can know you and understand you on a deeper level. What, what's that like? Uh, it makes me nervous. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a tightrope walk, I think. You know, it's it's um yeah, it's things that I, I emphasize how faith is a gift and I'm not criticizing someone for not believing. I talk about moments in my life where I've had doubts and uh where I question things. I, I might throw in a little Therese in there who's faced with oblivion on her deathbed, you know, like it's it's a to question one's faith is a part of the journey. And I truly don't judge someone for not having faith. I mean, you know, I, I'm hoping that they um, gotten, uh, respond to God's call if they hear it. But there's a mystery in terms of when God gives that faith out to people in their lives at different points. So, um, you know, I, I hope, I hope, see, I, I think nowadays it's really, I mean, you probably, I don't know. Actually, I have a question for you about this because you got okay. the collar on here. Um, I, it's my opinion. This is an opinion. And maybe this is because I've live in secular Connecticut and, uh, it's just I live in a in a non-Christian world, generally speaking. But I don't see evangelization, explicit evangelization working. I have never seen it work growing up, ever. And so for mm -hmm. me, my take on it, and what drives at least this version of the show, is 
is that implicit Christianity. It's living. I know Francis didn't actually say it, but the spirit is preach the gospel and when necessary, use words, right? So to live the life and wait for those times when crisis hits and they, they're looking for the religious guy and then they, they come to me and then we're there and I can, I can go pretty deep. But generally, I, don't, I, I find it just explicit evangelization doesn't work. Is that, I imagine it's a different experience because people know what they're getting with you or what do you think about evangelization in 2024? Uh, I, I would agree with you in the main that the explicit evangelization doesn't work, mm. that there's there's a method to it, there's a way to do it, and it's relational. Yeah. Uh, evangelization works best on, on a relational mm. level. Uh, so if I, can, if I can just be there with you and I'm willing to have a conversation with you, you might not ask me a single question about the church, yeah. but we got to sit and talk. And it was enough for you to know that I'm a human. Mm. And by by realizing that I'm a human being capable of entering into relationship with you. And that's not just me as a priest. That could be any person, right? You're most likely to be brought to something like faith through a friend, Mm. uh, through somebody who has has made the time to spend with you and to care about you as a person. And when you feel like you're cared for, you're willing to step into the thing that's important to that person who cares for you. Yeah. Uh, so if I haven't, if I don't have the sense that you are my friend or that you actually care about me as a person, why would I go to the thing that you want me to believe in? Why would I? Why would I step into that? But if you're willing to engage with me on that subject, uh, if you're willing to just let me be myself, uh, if you're willing to have me step into, like, if you're willing to invite me to something that I wouldn't have gone mm-hmm. to otherwise. Yeah. Yeah, then maybe I start to think, well, this person sees something. I, I look back at like my own, uh, my own progress in, in the faith as a as a kid, mm. and it was somebody taking an interest in me being there. Yeah, yeah, it's showing up, and because of that, I was willing to go. And then because of that, because I showed up, then I started learning things. Yes. And now I had questions and then I had found a place where I could ask those questions because I had the friend. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I don't know that the, like, if I was to just grab a, a microphone or a megaphone or something and go stand on the street corner and start preaching, I don't know how effective it would mm-hmm. be necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, especially in, in our day and age, like you look at online and you see these videos of uh, somebody who's talking into a microphone and they're just having this back and forth with whoever happens to be coming by. I don't know how effective any of that actually yeah, is. They're, they're, all, they're gotcha change videos minds often or hearts. too, aren't they? They're just they, they're just trying to make someone feel uncomfortable. And I don't think they, they and yeah. they and they show you the clips of where it looks like they change someone's mind by showing them the truth or something. Like I doubt it. I think part part of it's probably because exactly. the person's on camera. They don't want to feel like an idiot or, or or they're 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 frozen. You know, they're anxious and they're frozen and they can't come up with a rebuttal at that moment. You know. Right. And most of the arguments aren't all that deep no. anyway. They're they're saying stuff and they might be right. They might have the facts correct, but they're they're not delivering it in a way that's actually going to get to the heart. They're basically just getting to the facts in such a way that it's going to shut the other person up for a little yes. while. And then they get points for for winning the argument, but that's not evangelization no. either. No. That was the thing I had to learn and that was a that was a hard lesson for me to learn. Oh, yeah. Um in particular, like when I was in high school, I got really into apologetics uh, and stuff. And, um, I was kind of a jerk. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm still kind of a jerk, but that's a whole other yeah. thing. We'll talk about that on the Catholic Sinner Show. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is the tangent. We don't talk about my sins on the tangent, you know? <laughs> that's great. But 
the other thing though, you, you, you bring it up, like I'm the one with the collar yeah. on. And so for me, direct evangelization happens a little bit more readily. Yeah. yeah. And not necessarily because I go looking for it. It happens because I'm the guy with the collar on. So people show up and, and they approach me to talk about stuff. Sometimes in public, sometimes at an event. Mm. Um, like I, I was at a, a wedding rehearsal recently and did went to the rehearsal dinner, which I don't always go, but I was, I, I had to travel for the wedding anyway. So I figured I might as well go to the rehearsal yeah. dinner, get a meal out of it. <laughs> and I ended up sitting with a group of the bridesmaids and one of their husbands. Uh, so he was, he was a big support to me. That was really yeah. helpful. <laughs> <laughs> but I sat down and one of them looked at me and she goes, all right, father, I have some questions. And they started throwing out these questions. But the thing about their questions was that they were really very, very sincere. Yeah. Oh, good. They meant it. They they wanted to know stuff. And so there was this openness. And at one point, I I don't know, like Jesus just kind of grabbed me and shook me. And he's like, just, just say it. Ugh. Don't hold anything back. These guys can handle yeah. it. And so one of them was asking me about like the loss of spirituality in the world and why do I think that is, or is it just that people aren't that religious? And I don't know how I did this, but I, I sketched out from two world wars and the rise of totalitarian dictatorships uh, in in various forms, and the the questioning of the human person that that brings. Do not about. worry what you are to say. <laughs> <laughs> and then I ended up talking about the sexual revolution, the pill, and contraception and abortion, yeah. and then from there it it turned into like. How all of this led to Harvey Weinstein. Oh boy! <laughs> and it yeah. was, it was the craziest thing in the world. But they sat there, and I remember one of them just looked at me. And she goes, "That makes perfect yeah. sense." And then I said, "And this is what the church teaches." And she goes, "Oh, <laughs> yeah." People don't know what the church teaches, do they? They get their water. They get their and, watered down, interpreted, filtered faith from people they know. Yeah. yeah. But when she got, when she got that idea of like this is the church teaches this, and in some ways it's in response to these other yeah. things, and in other ways this is just the church being herself, and it's it's these other places that have kind of missed that that opportunity. It it was a really fascinating conversation, but it was one of those like if I didn't have a collar on, if I wasn't a priest, uh, they would yeah, never have asked would me happen. any of that. And I also never would have brought that up in conversation, yeah. you know, because that's not normal to no, talk about. That's just, no. and, <laughs> in fact, when I when people find out that I'm Catholic and I'm unabashedly Catholic and I'm willing to stand up for it, I, you know, did you ever find that a secular argument against a church teaching is like very simple and straightforward and logical? It's like, why can't I express my love physically through sex? And it's just an affection, you know. And then there, the, in your rebuttal is like. Well, in the beginning, God made them male and female. Like it's like <laughs> like it's not as simple and easy to respond at the level that the the objection arises. You know, it's like I'm not really especially right. when it's theology of the body and it's JP two and he's with his circular reasoning and logic and philosophy. It's like there's so many entry points into it. I, I sometimes I find a, you know that like a contraception argument or I mean sometimes well, abortion is a little bit easier, but you know, the controversial issues gay marriage i mean whatever it's it's so much harder to explain the fullness and give a real catholic answer that's satisfying without having them like grab a seat you know well that's just it 
do they have time to sit down and, and really listen to kind of the comprehensive discussion of who the human person is? Yeah. Or do they just want a quick answer? And as soon as you start to answer, they throw in the, well, what about this? What about this? And you're like, well, we got to stay on topic. Right. I yeah. can't, can't get to all of this. And and that's that's a hard a hard piece to evangelization. Sure. Um, I don't really know exactly how to how to answer that one. But I think friendship goes a long way because even if you don't get to the answer or if you don't finish the conversation, they're at least willing to uh, maybe to come back to it at another time. Yeah, but I, I think there's there's two ways to look at that too. This uh, emphasis you're putting on friendship and relationality as a vehicle for uh, evangelization. One is that you're modeling it, right? You the, you are you are mm-hmm. demonstrating what it means to be a Christian. But the other is you're manifesting God's love. Like you are the vessel and they're experiencing our Lord's love through you as an instrument. Like the more we become conformed to him, the more we're able to make his love present. Like we don't, we don't, the only way we're ever able to love anyone's because we're participating in his love. There's no love outside of his love, right? So it it's not just modeling. They're actually experiencing him through the relationship. Yeah. The relationship itself becomes the conduit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean that's I think it, it, it's so key. And if we're if we're looking to evangelize then the way is not necessarily going to be just by having having the right arguments, yeah. but forming the relationship. Yeah. So I like how you're doing that with keeping that that door open so that people can enter into the relationship. And the, and the other thing too is like sometimes I don't want to evangelize. Like sometimes I just want to watch yeah. a movie. Like that's another part of this show is I just want to hang out and I want to learn about someone's, you know, I have pro tennis player or someone's like a marksman fisherman or, you know, like I'm just interested in people and non-explicitly Catholic things. I mean, I don't, I think there's a lot of Catholics out there that don't watch The Chosen every Friday night and might just, you know, (laughs) pop on some normal stuff and they're almost ashamed of it. You know, they're almost ashamed among their Catholic peers to, to acknowledge that they're in the world, musically, media art. Sure. I mean, a lot, a lot of Catholics swear. I don't know if you knew that. A lot of Catholics, you probably <laughs> not you on were, the tangent. I'm not, not swearing, but I'm just saying, yeah. like, <laughs> be, people are people are in the world. Catholics are in the world, and I think they're ashamed of engaging with an otherwise very alluring and and um, attractive world, and and sometimes for good reasons because. Christ is there too. I don't like the distinction between us Catholics and those sinners. There's no such thing. Like Christ is everywhere. We're sinners and we're all sinners. We're all in this. Yeah. We have uh, here in Fairfield, we've got the the Gaelic American Club. So you go down there uh, and uh, I'm a member. And every time I go, there's, there's always parishioners there. And I've had, I've had more conversations running into parishioners over a Guinness Uh, then I think at the door of the church. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I think sometimes they're kind of surprised. And then you'll see somebody who isn't a member there who's been like brought in by a guest and they see me standing there having a Guinness talking to somebody and they go, oh, that's the greatest thing. Look, of course, like the priest having a beer at the at the Irish pub. And <laughs> I was like, no, that's just Father Sam. It doesn't it, count. It's different. <laughs> are you that Irish? You're, you're Gaelic, like hardcore Irish? No, I mean, on my mom's yeah. side, uh, Irish, but on my, on my dad's side, Italian, Ukrainian. Oh, so. okay. Um, which is really funny because I learned Irish music from my dad. <laughs> That's probably why your mom was attracted <laughs> to him. 
<laughs> yeah. She she can't sing, she can't play music. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a very it's a very unique very unique thing. I don't yeah. get it. Um so you're a, a Catholic who's who's proud of being Catholic, who's working for a Catholic organization mm-hmm. uh, in the field of psychology. So before we get into the field of psychology, yeah. um, tell me a little bit about how you as a Catholic develop. Um, and is there a, a moment in your life that you'd pinpoint, this was when my faith really started to matter to me? Ooh. Well, I mean, you know how these stories go. You know, looking back, you can <laughs> find the presence of God in, in your life before they, before you knew it, you know, so I could... I could start, you know, in the beginning was the word. I could start, I could start with that. Um, but I think um, I basically, I was living a pretty secular life until my mid twenties. And I was just a wreck. Hmm. <laughs> I was just a disaster. I wasn't happy. I was hanging out with the wrong people, doing the wrong things. Uh, yeah, I, I was, took me seven years to finish my undergraduate. I was screwing around working in restaurants and, just wasn't living the faith. And I, and I, I always had it in the back of my mind, like someday I'm going to get my act together. Like maybe when I get married and have kids, which is common enough, you know? Um, but then I was like, what am I waiting for? And it started with one stinking Hail Mary a day, just one Hail Mary a day. And then it just built and s- snowballed. And, uh, you know, next thing you know, I'm, you know, I'm in church with, you know, all the blue haired ladies that think I'm going to be the Pope and I'm in adoration by myself. There's no Catholic, young Catholics around here. I kind of had an EWTN conversion. Um, okay. But uh, in terms of community, I had no community really. My, my family, I was raised cradle Catholic. My mom was a CCD teacher and a Eucharistic minister and my dad's faith filled guy. But I just, I don't know. I just never, a part of me, well, actually, you know, you know what a weird thing is? There's a moment where I was uh, was atheistic. I wouldn't say I was full atheist, but I didn't wasn't sure about God. I didn't think he existed, but I somehow still believed in the Blessed Mother. Mm. Makes no sense. Like when things weren't going well, I prayed to Mary, but I didn't believe in God. It was so weird. And um, anyway, long story short, I uh, I started praying, getting my act together. And I was working in my undergrad and um, I was, you know, devouring Catholic books and I was all the spiritual reading and the prayers, and the adoration and rosary upon rosary, doing all the, all the, you know, the things you do when you're on fire for the faith, when you have your conver- your conversion of heart, your reversion. And uh, I was a history major at the time and someone introduced the idea of actually becoming a theologian to me. I got, and I got really mm-hmm. excited about that and I was like, oh, someone can actually make money and, and have a career and raise a family of being a theologian. I was wrong about that. Um, but, but yeah, they but, can't make money. <laughs> but I didn't know that at the time. <laughs> so I actually went to Holy Apostles college and seminary in, in Connecticut okay. um, and studied moral theology there for a bit. And then I realized, Oh, I can't, I mean, Scott Hahn, notwithstanding, I can't make any money off doing this. I can't raise a family. And so then I just started exploring my gifts. And then I heard about divine mercy university. One of the priests at, at Holy Apostles showed me a National Catholic Register, and uh, I wasn't sure. Then I met Father Benedict Rochelle, who was helping giving out turkeys mm-hmm. uh, to the poor on Thanksgiving in New York City, and uh, and I had been listening to him. He was part of my EWN conversion, and his integration of psychology and faith was very, very attractive to me. And I met him, and I spent some time with him, and I found out he taught at what was then the Institute for the Psychological Sciences. Now it's the Mind Mercy University. And uh, 
and he told me to go there. And I was like, okay. And so I went and and I, <laughs> okay. and, and, and that was it. I mean, you know, and then, then my professional career in psychology began. Wow. When you started off as a psychologist, were you, were you going solo independent? Were you working for a practice? How, how uh, well, I was, when I started off as a psychologist, I was, um, so as part of your doctoral program, you have to do an internship somewhere and you don't know where it's going to be. So you just try and land one somewhere in the country. And I landed in Denver, Colorado. I, I, I had met my wife, uh, Teresa, who's also uh, a, a, a therapist and mentor with Catholic Psych. I met her in my program and we got married in Virginia. And then I got my uh, internship out in Denver and I went out there and I did a two-year uh program out there for my internship and they were uh either preparing me to be in a leadership position out there because we, when you have the doctor you they you even if you don't deserve it which i didn't they 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 try and put you into a leadership position uh and uh it just didn't feel right you know denver is filled with mm. heavy liberals and cowboys and there's and the, and the chasm cannot be crossed between the two of them but in either case i didn't fit culturally and i knew i wanted to um have kids. And I, I mean, I don't know how to, how to have kids. I mean, I know how to have kids, but I don't know how to have kids, you know? And so I wanted to be around my family. <laughs> that's that's one of the best sentences I think I've ever heard uttered <laughs> on the tangent. <laughs> and so we, I just want to be around family to have kids. So um, my wife and I decided to move back to Connecticut, no plan, no job, no nothing. And, uh, you know, told my, told my boss out there, goodbye. Um, was graduating in like two months and uh, just trying to trust God that this is what he was calling us to. And then on Facebook, Dr. Greg Vitaro said, I'm looking for a postdoc resident. Anybody interested in Connecticut? Hmm. I just happen to be moving back to Connecticut and need a postdoc resident. <laughs> I'm in Connecticut. So I had known Greg from beforehand in the program. Um, but yeah, that's where we met back up in Connecticut. So he, uh, I was... I think he had one or two other therapists before me, but they were—they didn't really last. And so I was kind of the okay. the, the first real employee at Catholic Psych for the for the small practice that he was building. Hmm. What's your experience been like? I mean, I guess both in the practice from the early days with Catholic Psych, but also just being a Catholic psychologist and therapist and helping people to see the integration. Of those two things, because yes. I, I think there's a, a lot of folks out there still they they hear psychology and they write yeah. it off, or the opposite, they hear spirituality and they write it off. And they, they kind of assume well, if you're religious, then there's something irrational about what you do or, or how you are. Or if you're going to see a psychologist, then you're just you just got to get it together, deal with it. You're going to yeah. be fine. Um, but to actually see that there's both of these things are are okay. Like we don't just pray our problems away. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> we do pray, yes. right? But we don't just pray them away. There's also other things that might be yeah, going on. Yeah. Um what have you found as as that experience like? Well, I think I mean the the buzzword in my program was integration. That's the integration of those two mm -hmm. things. And uh there's so many different approaches to integration. One would be to talk about the human person and its uh, it, it, his constitutive dimensions, biopsychosocial, spiritual. So there's a biopsychosocial model in psychology. You add the spiritual dimension to it, or having uh, you know a will and, and like the classic Thomistic, a will and intellect, the passions, 
all, you know, all these things. And then you can add like created, fallen, redeemed, add like theological premises. And that's in some ways what the way I learned it. But, you know, as it's evolved for me, uh, it's, it, uh, in the same way, I've never had a thought without a feeling or I've never mm. not been in my body when I was relating to someone. Um, we don't have psychological experiences that are not spiritual at the same time. We we're in the West. So we have our Aristotelian minds. So we have to break things down into distinctions to understand them. But the real, like it's one experience for us always. And to me, it makes the most, the, the touch point for me that makes the most sense is how our early experiences in our family basically set us up for our faith. So all the things that we would say about our parents when we're children, are the things that we say about God when we're adults. Will you protect me? Will you provide for me? Will you guide me? Will you nurture me? All that stuff. We ask our parents for those needs to be met. And then in our adulthood, we're basically asking God for the same things. So if we have a terrible experience of those early on, of course, that's going to affect our spirituality. And to me, it's as simple as when I train students, I tell them, if someone says something to you about God, that conflicts with the teachings of the church, we're not talking about God. We're talking about their parents, right? So you can enter into, into this uh, integration from either direction. So it's to look at how your psychology is affecting your spiritual life, or you can understand someone's psychological life by, by learning about what their spirituality is, right? From, from, both, from both sides. But the reality is it's all one integrated center, how long do you wait before you bring up the question about parents? And I think a lot of people, the stereotype is if, if I go see a psychologist, I'm going to just be asked if my father hugged me enough when I was a kid. Uh, you know, you mean and, in clinical work or in my they, personal life? Oh, no, sorry. I mean, in, in clinical work. I mean, you could ask that, I guess, in your personal life too. How long do you wait before you ask people <laughs> that you're meeting as friends? Pretty, like, so tell pretty me about quick. the relationship. No, 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 with your I asked them right away. Uh, we just met at a party and I'd like to go home now. <laughs> oh. oh, I see you had broccoli. I see you had no, no, broccoli. And clinical work. broccoli like, for dinner. Uh, Tell me about your uh, dad. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I'm, it's it's pretty, you know, I explained the model uh, right away. You know, I don't, I don't wait to talk about okay. family systems. I mean, our whole model is built on the idea that all of our, all of our struggles psychologically are embedded in patterns of relating to people. So they're all okay. our, 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 all our pathology, all our psychopathology, and myself included, we all have defenses. We have, we all have these things. They're designed to minimize abandonment anxiety at the bottom. That's it. We're trying to stay connected to our parental figures and we have to act a certain way over and over and over again so that we feel that we're connected to them. So if the only way I get attention is by being charismatic or funny in my home life, well, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to try to be as funny and charismatic and interesting as I can be. And then it becomes crystallized into this pattern. And then I do that with everybody my whole life. Now, there's nothing wrong with being charismatic and funny as long as you're flexible enough to change depending on the context. If I can't help it and, and I always need to be the center of attention, well, that's going to maintain my, my pathology, right? And then if I can't get mm-hmm. those needs met, if someone doesn't think I'm funny or I'm rejected, well, now I'm depressed or anxious, right? That, the, the mood disorders are just a byproduct of like the congruence between my interior personality architecture and the current state of the environment around me. So if I don't have any flexibility, sooner or later, I'm going to hit an environment that doesn't work with my personality. So I'm going to be depressed or anxious. It's like, 
like a narcissistic personality defense. You know, if, if they're at the top of their company and, you know, they have the, someone has the trophy wife and everything's fine, you know, until, until, you know, they lose their job or, you know, they get caught cheating and then now they're suddenly they're depressed and anxious, but they may have never made it to therapy if everything like worked out for their lives. I mean, it quote unquote worked out, not really worked out, but so, so I, I, I let people know that right away. I, when we talk about personality structures and um, family dynamics and history and, you know, then they may say they don't want to go into it. You know, I have my ways. <laughs> now, the bulk of your work is with adults though, right? Now it is. Yeah. Yeah. I've done some work with children. Okay. I've done some work with children and teenagers too. I, I imagine there's there's got to be a different approach when you're working with, with kids in the context of psychology, counseling, and psychoeducation, right? That there's a, 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 a sensitivity that you've got to have to their particular needs, but also to the fact that their parents are involved. Oh, yeah. um, and you've got to keep them informed and, and part of the discussion. Um, but, you know, you're, you're talking about the, the different mood mm-hmm. disorders really kind of being a, so related to those, those things is. that, well, this is where I find affirmation. Yeah. Uh, this is where I found myself to be kind of accepted and, yep. and affirmed. Um, what do you think that says about the the prevalence of anxiety among children today? Um, you mean in the broad in the broader culture? Yeah, just like at, at large, the it's so common well, I don't, to find kids who are are struggling. Well, with I don't. Anxiety. Well, I think that all comes out ultimately. I think it comes down to the breakdown of the family and and yeah. um, and immaturity on the part of parents. I think, um, you know, uh, this is a huge topic. This is one of those like in the beginning topics. Um, but I, but I, but I yeah. think <laughs> the, the, it starts that we start to play into uh, gender distinctions here and what the call is for each one to grow into maturity. And the reality is we're all called to be parents. Psychological maturity is about being a parent. You know, there's, there's a reason why we call you father, right? Uh, if someone is not ready to be a parent, then there's an there's an immaturity there, and part of being a parent is uh, in learning how to develop in the gifts of the opposite gender. So typically for men, the temptation is to disengage. It's easy to disengage. Boys don't want to be part of the family; they want to go out and do fun stuff, right? And but the challenge for them is to stay engaged, stay present. And not be what we have uh, many examples of, and that's a deadbeat dad who's not involved. And as the family breaks down, and we have a lot of divorce, and creates a lot of anxiety because the the father is a fixture of security. On the mom side, it's the opposite. It's to back off a little bit. It's to give some space. It's to not be controlling. It's to not be critical. So we, this is why we have so many like helicopter moms out there that are hovering over their children, right? When you have the balance of both parents drawing from each other and growing in one another's gifts. Like the, the the mom, a healthy mom is learning how to give some space from the dad. The dad is learning how to be more relational, empathic, engaged from the mom. And mm. the kids need both. And they need that security. They need that attachment. They also need challenging. I, you've heard a lot of people complain about the the, the narcissism of the millennials. That's because it's <laughs> it's like unconditional positive regard without do the difficult thing regardless of how you feel. That needs to be part of it as well. The challenge, not just rapport building, but challenging. We know this in our clinical work. It's building rapport and connecting with people, but it's also challenging them to grow, even if they don't like it, 
right? So kids, you know, don't, there's ways to deliver proper parenting, but you got to be willing to let your kids be mad at you. And that's rare. And if you, and if, if you don't let them be mad at you actually creates anxiety because then they feel like they're driving and the world is terrifying. If they don't feel like there's someone to set the mm. rules and the parameters while well, they're living in a very terrifying existence, right? I think they're desperately seeking rules and yeah. parameters. Yeah. Right. I think they, they need somebody to show them. And yeah. Is it, do you think that your background with psychology uh, prepared you well for being a parent? Uh, oh gosh. Or do you think that it's, yeah. yeah. yeah do, do you find yourself like psychoanalyzing your kids? Uh, yes, I do. I, I think my, <laughs> I think I'm at high risk of screwing up my kids. No, no, my kids are, my kids are wonderful. Um, they're, they're really great kids. Has it helped me? Yes. I mean, I do. I have advantages uh, of, of a didactic sort of a, of a book knowledge sort that my parents didn't have. Yes, but you know, it's like nothing prepares you really. I, I mean, you may have ideas. You may say, okay, you know, my my children are only going to uh, watch a you know a tell one television show per week on the weekends after they you know, clean their rooms. Like that's just not how it plays out. Yeah. You know, it's like, like I got to cook dinner, like, you know, enjoy Bluey for a couple hours yeah. or, or less. Just please leave me alone. <laughs> well, not that. I love being around my kids, but there are many examples of, of um, like it's the, the, how it plays out in reality does not align with what is in the psychology books. And you have to, you have to, you have to yeah. like live in reality. At what point did you realize, like you as a father, can give your kids that space where they can mess up, where they can explore, where they can kind of go on their own little adventures? And it's not that you're not with them; you're you're very much there for them and caring yeah. for them. But like they've got that room. Like you, you might have known that from the books, right? From your, yeah. your training. But there's a certain point where you realize they're going to be okay. Because I look at it, and you know, I step into. Um, either in my own family, like my extended family and see the little cousins yeah. and stuff or, um, you know, my goddaughters, I, I, I see them and I'm like, just always worried. Like, are they going to, are they going to hurt themselves? Or are they going to fall down? Like what's, yeah. what's going to happen? I want to make yeah. sure they're okay. And their moms are always like, what are you worried about? Well, how many they're kids do the, the moms have though? Cause I think that's the answer. Yeah. One. Yeah. One's got four. Yeah, that's one's why. got seven. So, <laughs> that's yeah. why. Like I noticed yeah. a difference even between my first and my second. You know, you just like when you're first, you have all this emotional space to lock in on them. And so you, you, you just, you're worried about every little thing. There's just such a thing as a first time parent syndrome. And then you have your second kid and you just don't have time to give, to devote the same. And, and then, and they're fine. They, they find a way, you know, they, they, they could do way more earlier than you thought because they see their older sibling do it. And it's like, oh, yeah. oh if, if, if they can do it, I can do it. And so. Yeah, they, 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 when you have more kids, I think you relax with each child a little bit more. <laughs> I am always amazed. I'm, I'm fortunate, like in, in my parish, to have a good number of families that have four or yeah. more kids. And then to watch the older kids interact with the younger kids <laughs> in the family and just sort of the way that they take care of them and the way that they help out. And there's, almost to a family, there's this unique bond between the oldest and the youngest. That's just really, really yeah. special and, and very, very unique. And it's, it's so cool yes. to see. 
and to watch those kids just interacting that way. Um, but yeah, so much they, they're learning from yeah. the others. I think there's something natural to it as well. I mean, I, uh, I, I, we, my wife and I have been very conscious to not place undue responsibility on like my older, like the older sibling. And, um, mm-hmm. we don't want to say like, we don't want to put him in a position where he has to take care of, you know, sequential siblings. Right. Um, but even still, he, he initiates that. Like I'll watch, I'll watch her. I'll watch her. Go ahead, dad. You know, like I'll watch her. Or, I mean, of course, like there's tattletaling. It's like, worry about yourself. You know, it's like they, 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 they practice yeah. at being a parent, but even just like the, the, the nurturing that you're talking about, the caring, the connectiveness that happens. That's not always enforced or created by parents. There's something natural to them wanting to take care of one another. It's beautiful. Mm. Yeah. And that sibling bond gets, just gets so strong uh, to, just to see that, that, you know, kind of, kind of lived You have two out. sisters. Um, Did you say? No, no, I have, uh, I just you have, have a, a brother. brother and a, a sister-in-law. Oh, gotcha. That's nice. That's yeah. very nice. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but yeah, no, no biological sisters. Um, although the sisters of life always, always tease me. They're like, are you sure you don't have sisters? Because you seem to be really happy around the sisters. I'm like, well, yeah, that's because I didn't have sisters myself growing up and you guys are the closest thing I got. So like I get to make all the, all the brother jokes that I never got to make with a sister with you guys. It's fantastic. And I appreciate it. Yeah. I don't think they always appreciate it. <laughs> is it, is it an older brother or younger brother for you? He's younger. Uh, he's younger. Uh, he's four years younger than me. Didn't- yeah. So what's interesting is like we went to, we went to elementary school together, uh, but then high school, I went through high school, graduated, and he oh. came in. And so we were never in high school at the same time, but we know a lot of the same people yeah. from high school. And um, I, I went into seminary right out of high school from a Catholic yeah. high school. And so that was kind of a big deal for a lot of people at the school. And for you. <laughs> and, and, well, and for me too, yeah. But like my poor brother had to, had to go like in- Like explaining that? To the same high school- and everybody's like, oh, you're Sam's brother. Aww. And I remember I was, I don't know why I was at the school, um, but I had to be there for something. And I walked in and this kid looked at me and said, are you Gabe's brother? <laughs> and that's when I knew that he had found his own path and his own identity at the school. And I was, I was awesome. really excited that's for cool. him. Like, yeah, he wasn't going to just be known as as my brother, which is really better for Definitely. him. And, uh, Definitely. You know. Yeah, he'd, he'd been able to find that that path of his own. Um, and yet there's something really cool too when you see siblings who are, there are personality traits that you can kind of expect within yes. the family. But I also love it when uh, the kids have grown up in such a way that the parents don't expect them to be exactly oh. the same. Like my brother and I are super different. Mm-hmm. Um, I played music growing up. He was yeah. into sports. Um, I love sports, but was never as good at them as he yeah, is yeah. good at them. He's got these natural athletic gifts and he, he worked on them. He did all that. Like, I think my gifts were, were more in, in music. And so I, I worked on those and there was an expectation, like dad made sure that we both knew how to throw a baseball <laughs> and that we both knew how to yeah. play instruments. I took to the instruments yeah. more and 
Gabe took to the sports yeah. more, but like it was simply part of what we did, but there was no expectation that like we absolutely had to be super successful at yeah. X, Y, or Z. You just had your natural proclivities and without pressure and you, and you both took to different directions. Yeah. So how would you tell a parent then who's, who wants to direct their kids without directing too much? Oh, I don't, I think, I think that's a sin against the kid. I, I remember, I remember when my, my oldest was uh, in the womb and I was sitting there and I was thinking about, uh, well, I hope, I hope he, I hope he dot, 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 right. To fill in the blank with whatever. I hope he likes basketball. I hope he's this. I hope he's that. And I thought to myself, man, I'm putting pressure on this kid. He hasn't even come out yet. You know, why don't I let him introduce <laughs> himself to me? You know, and that, that's the way I approach it. I, I, um, I think my, actually my son is very different than me. He's like his mother in temperament, like mm -hmm. kind of internal chemistry. Uh, you know, he's, he's, um, I I think in my opinion, he's just kind of like built as a blue collar kind of guy. He's mechanical. He's into things. He's into trucks. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a psychologist. I'm, I'm more people oriented, you know? Um, and, right, um, right. But that's okay. Like I'm just going to track whatever he wants to get into. I don't, you know, I mean, if he, if he doesn't want to go to college, whatever he wants to do, I just want to track with that and not put any pressure on him, but also nurture what he is into. You know, what he is into, I want to find a way to support it and and put whatever, you know, resources I have behind that, whether it's emotional or financial or whatever. And just know that whatever he wants to do, I encourage it and I support it, even if it's not what what dad would do or what dad likes. I mean, there's some overlap. There's some things we like mm -hmm. to do, like fight each other. But um, in gen in general, uh, like oh, we do. I mean, it's so funny. We really love like wrestling and fighting. Yeah, that's awesome. How fine do you think the line is between letting your kid find the thing that they really like and just go for it, and I need to give this kid direction. Mm. Like I, I need to instruct, I need to teach. Like, obviously I think we can get into the, there's the overbearing yeah. version of that. Um, I'm going to teach everything or I'm going to dictate everything that the kid does. And then there's the, the opposite extreme, extreme, mm -hmm. like just do whatever you want. It's fine. And you can, I think, I think it probably like find your way. I think it depends eventually. on the kid. I think some kids need mm -hmm. more direction than others. Yeah. You ever see Goodwill Hunting? I just yeah. I, I was just talking to one of my guests about this film, and uh, you have the two kind of like quasi father figures in that. You have the Robin Williams character who just wants to create this space to have the main character Will Hunting uh, uh, discover what he wants, and and that's one argument. And then you have the mathematician father figure who's saying like we need to push him, we need to give him direction. Like I wouldn't be where I am if someone didn't push me. We need that. And I also I thought that the interesting thing about that was um, both of them had, for lack of a better word, perverted versions, the father figures, of what they were trying to instill in the kid. So the the Robin Williams character was aimless. He was sort of lost. He couldn't he was dealing with the grief of his spouse mm. and he couldn't really find any direction for himself. And the the mathematician, who was the driven one, was living in a world of ego and competitiveness 
and um, insecurity because Will was smarter than him and he had all kinds of issues. So I don't think there's one way or another. I think hopefully you have parents, a child has parents that balance out both and they're discerning of what a particular child may need. I think there's some kids that we like I, myself, I am not ambitious at all, like at all. If it was up to me, I would be like totally fine sitting in my house playing video games. Like that's it. I, I've never <laughs> been ambitious, to, you know, career goal oriented, nothing, nothing. And God keeps just, just like saying, go do this. And I'm like, fine. Just like, fine. And that's, that's how I got here. So like I need, I, I mean, from a spiritual sense, I've needed someone to push me. Um, but some kids, I mean, you push them, they're already pushing themselves and then they can crack when you give them the littlest bit of pressure. You know, there's those, those, that kind of personality sure. structure too. So I think you gotta be discerning about the child. Yeah. Yeah. They don't, they don't always need to be uh, pushed or, or, or bribed. Like they're doing yeah, it on their own. Kids. Were you like that? Let them go. I think I was more of the, um, I know that this is important, so I'm going to yeah. do it. Um, yeah, I think w the, the way I always look at it is I think my parents laid out, um, they laid out some expectations or things that they thought were yeah. priorities. And those are like family Fair. priorities. This is important. We, we go to school, we study, um, we, we do these things together as a family. And so because those things were normal and part of our everyday life, it was like, well, that's, that's yeah. what I'm going to do. Um, I remember at, at one point somebody uh, showed me something. I don't, I don't remember what this was, but it was like for every, uh, for every A that you get, I'll give you $10 for every B that you get, you'll get $5. Um, you don't get any money for anything Truth. lower than a B. Uh, and I was like, why would you need to get paid to get grades? like aren't you supposed to do your best and your best is going to get you the best grades mm. and if you can't get the best grades then it means that that's a subject that's really hard mm. for you like like trying your best trying hard is a given it was like a default mm. yeah i think if, if anything i was more willing to give up on things that i thought were too <laughs> hard yeah like man if if i didn't have some pressure especially in high school with math class i would have I would have failed, I think, every single math class if I didn't have somebody pressuring me like, no, you actually have to pass. <laughs> it's really important, not only that you pass, but that you, you've you actually got to try to do better because I just don't like Brilliant. mathematics. Like That's not the thing that's interesting yeah. to me. Um, I think, actually, this is where it, it's the person part. It's, it's, there's, there's no person I behind the numbers I know. for yeah. me. Safe. And so I'm like, there's no art to it, although- now I have an understanding with a, a more mature sense of, of how there is actually a mathematician uh, behind all the beautiful art and everything. There's a symmetry, there's proportion mm -hmm. and all this stuff, but there's also a way in which that's beautiful by mm -hmm. itself, sure. right? But what's missing is always that there's no personal right. connection. Like I can't sit there and do a math problem and find a this person. Is, this is why I don't like it. cats. Thank you. I I can't for this very reason. <laughs> you can't connect with them like you can a dog. <laughs> no, yeah. exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, cats are they're indifferent. They don't yeah, care about dogs you. Dogs have owners, cats have staff. They just use yeah. you. <laughs> my dog 
but my dog comes over and he like, he just puts his face like right on my leg as I'm sitting at the desk and yeah. he just looks at me and he's like, what are we doing now? And he's, he started, it's weird. He started doing this more. I've had him for a long time, but like he started following me more. Like, where are we going? Can I come with you? To very relational. What about now? Like, yeah, there's this, like, there's this sense and I can look at him and every once in a while, sometimes it's just the look and that's enough for him to like go in the other room. Like, oh, I'm not supposed to be in here right now. Okay. I'm, Father I'm Benedict leaving. used to say, like, don't expect unconditional love from a human being ever. Unconditional love. If you want unconditional love, get a dog. Yes. <laughs> I couldn't You agree can yell at them, more. be short with them. You know, you, you like, oh, just show them all your worst parts <laughs> and then it doesn't matter. They're still wagging their tail and they still love you. Yeah. Yeah. They're right there. Yeah. Well, because you gave them a treat. Like, you, you have peanut butter? Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm right here. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> it's the greatest. Yeah. Yeah. Do you ever find when you meet people, this is off topic, but <laughs> when you meet people and like you tell them that you're a psychologist, mm. that something changes in the dynamic, in the conversation in that moment, like it's a social event. It's not a professional event oh, or yeah. something like that. Like I have it where like I, I show up and I've got a collar on and I'll notice like I'm walking past somebody and, and some language Both. slips out and- they look at me. Oh, oh yeah. sorry, Father. Oh, yeah. Uh, or, or people always feel like they, they've just got to make sure that it's okay for them to tell a story with oh, me yeah. present. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I get that. I get that too because I have a lot of secular friends. Even over Christmas, I had a friend. This, this, uh, this. I went to a Christmas party and this girl was wearing a, a, like a Christmas sweater that was had some lewd content on it, and she was like kind of covering it up. And her husband was like, "What are you doing?" She's like, "I don't want Brian to see it." And then she swore later on. She's like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm like, what do you mean you're sorry? So I get the Catholic part of it. I mean, obviously it's much more accentuated with you with the collar. But the psychologist thing, you yeah. know, you get a couple different types of questions. You got, um, um, are you psychoanalyzing me right now? That's the, that's, the answer is always yes, well, isn't it? It's kind of the answer is yes. It's, it's whatever you <laughs> want it to be. <laughs> well, the answer to that question, can I size someone up very, very quickly? Yes, I can. But real psychoanalysis requires sure. participation. I can't just like, you know, I'm not Padre Pio. I can't, I can't read souls, you know? Um, mm. So there's that question. The next question is, uh, oh, I've been in, I've been in therapy before. They, they, they want to relate to you and connect with you. I've been in therapy. Let me tell you about my problems. And then the third is like, can you, can you fix my, my wife or can you, can you fix my cousin Jeff? And they'll tell me about someone else's problems. So they all, they all want free therapy. Do you just tell them I'm not on the clock right now? Like I'm not working. <laughs> um, I don't know. It's been a while. I think I, I try and normalize it as much as possible. I mean, you know, I I like to take off my psychologist hat too as frequently as I can. Say no, I can't read your mind. Don't worry about it. it. It's fine. Stuff like that. Even though I can't. But were you thinking of the number three just now? <laughs> yeah, I but so. <laughs> I am part of the Jedi Order. <laughs> yeah. How do you take off the hat though? Um, it's hard. Like, all right. Part of this is your fault. I'm going to blame Earth. you for this <laughs> in oh, the best possible way. I go through the CPMAP yeah. certification and now I, I, I meet people. Um, I was talking to somebody recently and as the conversation was, was going, it was the first time I had met this person and I, I started realizing, well, this particular thought pattern, which was basically, 
I know I'm not supposed to feel this way. Right. But it almost doesn't matter what way the person is feeling. The decision is already made. I'm not supposed to feel this way. Validation of their own feelings. Yeah. Yeah. And the very first thing, and this, this was not like a, they weren't approaching me to talk about this for counseling purposes or anything, but all that's I going through my yeah. mind is, why don't you think you <laughs> should feel that way? <laughs> Where's when that was come the first from? time you remember? And I'm like, don't do it. When don't say that. the first time that? you remember feeling that way? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. No, it's hard. I, it's, it's. <laughs> what was your relationship like with your father? <laughs> no, I, mean, I think that's why people in, in, in our line of work hang out with each other because you, you really can't unsee mm-hmm. the things that you learn how to see. It's very, very difficult. You can't turn it off. And I think that the really difficult part is to see not just this person that you just met, but people you love in your personal life making these mistakes. And and you just see like car crashes in slow motion and they don't want your help. The people you love and you know you could help them, they don't want your help. If a client comes to me and they say, hey, Dr. Brian, I have this issue. Can you help me with it? Okay, great. We're on the same page. But I mean, my, you think my family and friends are going to listen to me? Of course not. I'm just, I'm just, you know, Brian from the block, you know, and so they don't want to hear it. And so I have to, it's the, my only recourse is to, the, is to our lady because, you know, she, mm. talk about just absurd, like letting someone she loves suffer. I mean, who did it better than her? And so, so that's, that's the only place I, I can find solace. And then socially, I find that, um, I find myself surrounded by people doing what we do. And I think that's, what's great about our community within Catholic psych. I, I know we're, you know, we, we work together, quote unquote, but there are real friendships and real relationships that develop in that context. So, uh, I mean, I, if people, I mean, I imagine if people saw Dr. Greg and I having a conversation, they'd think we were aliens or something, you know, because so much is <laughs> so much we don't have to explain, right. With people who aren't in the world of mental health, I just yeah. find myself explaining things, you know? Yeah, but when you're with somebody else, you speak the same language. Exactly. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I, I find this with priests. Um, and I, I remember actually, it was um, uh, Monsignor Ross Schechterly. He was our uh, our counseling director yeah. uh, at the seminary. Uh, he was a priest. He's a psychologist. And I remember him telling us, "You're going to have a, a major change in your friendships, yeah. and you don't know this yeah. yet because you haven't had the chance to sure. experience it, but." You are going to experience uh, something so different as priests that it won't take long before your closest friends are are, are uh, other priests. The people who you're good yeah. friends with now, like folks back home, they they will remain yeah. your good friends. But the relationship is going to change. Depth with you them. can't get to with them. Yeah, exactly. There are certain things that you just can't say to them. And it's not their fault. It's not a. It's not a negative thing against okay. them. It's simply there are things that that they don't know about because they're not priests. And actually, I saw this um, not too long ago. We had uh, my class got together for our, our fifteen okay. year reunion, and some of the guys I hadn't seen in ten years. Yeah. Um, and there was this picking up right where we left off that came both from having studied together but also now from shared experiences. Um, and so even guys like in, in any given class, you, you don't expect that everybody right, gets okay. along. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like, Hey, we're yeah. all friends. We're all buddies. No, like we don't all get along with each other necessarily, but 
there was something about the fact that we had all experienced certain things yeah. in the same way that leveled out everything else that was that had been uncommon yeah. to us before. Like those things that weren't our common experience when we right. were in seminary, suddenly years of priesthood meant that we were all much more on the same page than when we left do you, seminary. Do you, you know, I know I do, but do you hate being siloed as a priest? Like I know that there are some dioceses out there where the, all the brother priests like live in community, diocesan priests. And there's not many of them, but I've heard of a couple. I think there's one out there mm. in Detroit or something like that. But do you feel like, do you just long to live more in community with your brother priests? Yes. Um, I've been fortunate in my priesthood to pretty much always live with yeah. other priests. I think the longest stretch that I went living alone was okay. three months. Um, but I've, I've always been in a place where I'm, I'm with other priests. Um, I went three years where I was the only priest at yeah. my parish, but I lived with two Ooh, other priests yeah. um, who were not assigned to the parish, but who, who did things. So, so we had like a fraternal life together. Um, what's challenging with that is when it's, it's sort of by default, like I lived in a rectory that had rooms and there were two priests who needed yeah. rooms. <laughs> and so they got sent to live there. Well, that well, meanwhile, works. You like, could have made one of them like your, along. Pin, your pinball room or something like that. And they're coming in, taking up the space. Yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> I, was, I was planning billiards it's, and darts and everything. Right. It's going to be great. Um, no, I had, I, there were two priests who needed rooms. I had rooms. I knew them. We got to talk. I said, all right, let's, yeah. let's do this. But even with that, what's challenging is that we were on three radically different yeah. schedules. Uh, so I'm in the parish one guy's, you know, his ministry takes him on the road. So he would be gone for two, three weeks at mm -hmm. a time sometimes. Um, and just like kind of popping back in. The other guy was was a high school chaplain. Uh, so his hours were really wonky because when you're doing high school work, you start the day early because that's when the kids start. But then you're staying around for extracurricular activities and for games and stuff like that. So he would often like leave at seven in the morning. And around nine o'clock at night, he'd be Oof. rolling back in. Um, so there's there's some odd odd schedules. So there's a there's a certain amount of fraternity, right. but it's not very defined. Yeah. So if I was looking for more community, it would be: is there a way that we can define what communal life is like yeah. in the rectory, such that we are committed to sharing prayer together yeah. at certain times, and such that we're committed to just fraternal yeah, time together. And I think that has to be intentional. It has to be. Like, I mean, I have, yeah. I mean, this goes all the way back to when I was just living with a, you know, a bunch of joker roommates in, in graduate school. It's like Thursday night, I don't care. We're having dinner together as brothers, you know? And then now in my family life, like it's a leave a little more structures. I have like Thursday night family dinner, which is like with my, you know, my parents and extended people. And then Sunday, we go to mass. We have brunch every Sunday. Sunday nights, I have date night with my wife. But mm. it, it, it's so easy for things to creep up on that. And so, so other, because other things will try and demand your time. And you can say no to those other things because I have something locked into my schedule. But that takes discipline. Yeah. It, well, it takes discipline, but it also takes, like, for a priest, the right kind of well, an environment. Like, all right, I was I was the only priest at my parish yeah. for three years. I I had assistance with like yeah. mass coverage 
from other priests and that the two priests who live with me would help out with mass coverage. But for actual parish yeah. activity, um, anything that required the ministry of a priest was, oh, was my yeah. responsibility. Because there yeah, wasn't fear. another priest, right? Now, sometimes that gets exaggerated. And uh, I definitely lean into sometimes thinking that more stuff is actually in my field of responsibility yeah. than is, <laughs> in fact, in my field mm -hmm. of responsibility. In fact, uh, Paula and I were talking about that today. Uh, I was I was thanking her for something she did a couple of years ago where she basically banished me from uh, sending out emails to the parish and also banished me from using our parish social media account to post anything. She goes, nope, I'm doing that from now on. Don't do it. You don't do it right, and uh, yes. it doesn't look good. So it was great because she just yeah. told me what needed to happen, but also like communicated to me that she could handle yeah. that. It was fantastic. It was the great, best thing she could have done. But there's this, like, if you're in a parish yeah. on your own as a priest, um, there is definitely more of a feeling that anything that requires a priest's presence, a priest's ministry, that's that's my responsibility. I'm the only one who can do that, and so that means that. Uh, hey, we wanted to do something. We wanted Wednesday night or Thursday night to be that community night for the guys yeah. living in the rectory. But guys living in the rectory, I'm really sorry, this thing came up and I've got to go take care of it. You have to gauge like, to, uh, like what level of priority that thing that came up is, right? I mean, I'm sure there are some things that are like, well, maybe I don't have to sit in on Bible study tonight. you know. And then there are other things that are like, yeah, I got to be there for that baptism. You know, like- <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, what's I think where where that becomes challenging it, for at least in my case is everything's Whoa. on fire. It's always on fire. And so it it like I have to be yeah. there to take care of it. Right? And uh well, that's obviously not always the right thing to do, <laughs> nor is it accurate. So right? is that a firstborn? Uh, is fact, that a firstborn? There's no thing? fire. It's probably a little bit of yeah. a firstborn thing. Uh probably a little bit of uh I think honestly, a, a response to um, to yeah. actual needs, and a little bit of the the experience of like, you know, the one time I wasn't there, oh, something happened. Oh no, that's the worst. You know? I know. Yeah. Oh, like I can't tell you the number of times I've had voicemails from people. Like I took a day yeah. off, which. My staff will tell you I'm not good at, and they're really grateful when I'm not here, <laughs> <laughs> which might tell you all kinds of other things too. Like my staff's really happy when I take it, when I actually take my day off, I took my day off. I came back and I have one voicemail. Oh, father, I'm sorry. I missed you. You must be on vacation hey. because my secretary said he's not mm. in the office right now. I'll give you his <laughs> voicemail. And that turned into he must be on vacation. I'm like what people think I'm just taking vacation left and right. I would love to be on vacation right now. No, I left the office for four hours today, and that was it. Like, yeah. How did that translate? What's the last time you took a vacation? <laughs> yeah, uh, August. Okay. Where'd you go? August. Uh, I went to Wyoming. Okay. You did some uh, outdoorsy fly fishing kind of stuff. Did some. Did some outdoorsy fly fishing kind of stuff. That's cool. And um, it was what was great about it was how bad the fishing ended up being. Uh, and I'm like on this river that all the pictures that I've seen from everybody who I know who has fished the river, like massive trout. Cool. I caught in the course of the week, I caught three fish. <laughs> uh, no, four fish, excuse me. There was, there was that one that I caught the first day or the second day rather. Um, 
but the it had rained for like a week before, so the river's all washed out, so the, the fishing wasn't good. But I did, while fishing one day, come across some really nice grizzly tracks. Oh, uh, nice. It was really cool. And so I, I just pushed my boot into the mud next to them, and I took a picture of my boot next to the grizzly prints, just mm. for the size comparison. And yeah. it was, I mean, it was unreal. And then just knowing that that's out there. Yeah. And maybe not far. Maybe not far. Exactly. So like head so, on a swivel, just kind of checking everything out all the time. It was, oh, it was amazing. That is cool. Just amazing. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, even things like, like vacation, right? To finally get to that place where it's okay to disconnect. Do you feel that with, with clients and with, with the people that you're working with? Because I mean, you're taking care of their emotional health and well-being. I do not find that difficult. No? How do you do it then? I just shut the door. <laughs> that's it. No, that's it. I think um, I think when you do this long enough, you realize where, like, not just, w- when you're training, you learn about this concept of boundaries. You know, you, you can't take your work home for you. You can't choose for other people. It's all conceptual. But I think if you do it long enough, you start to actually experience where you end and someone else begins. Mm. Because you've seen so many people and you're, consistent yourself generally and you know when someone's engaged and so i when someone's you know has been dragged into clinical work or whatever it may be um so since i know what my responsibility is i know how to um i know it's their responsibility and so i know how to close the door and um because i have to live because if i'm not good then i'm not good for them yeah. So I have to be in a good place. And so I have to be able to turn it off. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, it's a bit unfair for me because I have kids, you know, like when you have kids like that, that door, you know, to my office cracks a little bit and it's like, dad, you know, it's like, like there's, you don't even have any transition. So they, they suck your attention up into like, you're completely not, I'm not Dr. Brian anymore as soon as I walk out that door, you know? So that helps. Right, but even right. before that, the, the longer you do clinical work, you you have to learn how to compartmentalize or or you'll burn out. And the other thing too is what's cool about our model, which is different than other models of psychology and clinical work, is that we share how we feel. We mm. don't have to be the perfect clinician that says the right things. What is the most therapeutic thing to say? We might say, I'm annoyed. I'm irritated. I'm bored. I'm sad. I'm happy for you. I'm overjoyed for you. Right? We we have authentic, we get we offer an authentic relationship. And that helps with burnout. Because we mm. get it out. We get it out of our system. Rather than just holding and holding and holding it. Now I will tell you that I'm net, like there's no circumstances ever where I'm not worried about a client who's you know, in a tough spot, you know, but I, even that in those cases, I have to choose with my will to leave it, but I still can get there. Do do you think, all right. Do you think that's different than for like a priest? I don't, I don't take the priest hat off. I'm, I'm always a priest. Um, so do I think it's different? Uh, I mean, I'm always a psychologist in that in that sense. I think taking the hat off is important in terms of responsibility. I think you have to be in a good place so that you can be there for your spiritual children. Yeah. You need to take care of yourself so you can take care of them. You need to be 
nourished and enriched and have some space or else it's going to come out in how you relate to people. And there's no avoiding it. You know, I, I remember Dr. Greg said to me one time and I was working on something within myself and I kind of made the, the, the half joke like, yeah, it's okay. I just will just bury that part of myself. And you know, I just won't, I just won't, you know, I would just won't show, show that to my, my son or whatever. Or I won't show that to my kids. And he's like, you're not going to be able to hide that from your kids. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know what? You're right. It'll come out. It'll come out sideways. It'll, it'll manifest somehow in some way, shape or form. So if you find that you're just drained and you never have any time for yourself, I mean, of course you're always a priest, but what does it mean to always be a priest? Sometimes Jesus would take off and go pray on a mountain by himself. Like, you know, like he, and he's the priest of all priests. So I think, I think, I don't know. Well, right there, I think actually you're, you're getting at the distinction between the priest as an ontological identity yeah. That I'm I'm a priest by virtue of the sacrament of holy orders, and therefore it's something that I I am I am always a priest at every moment. There's there's nothing about me that cannot be priestly. Yes. Um, that's why when I go to confession, I have to say, "Bless me, Father, for I have sinned." It's been this long since my last confession. I am a priest because <laughs> well, that gives the context for everything else that I'm about to say. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it's not so great, right? But <laughs> yeah. Um, that's for the Catholic Center show. Sorry. <laughs> but the uh, there's the that ontological reality that yes. I am a priest no matter what. But then there's the the habit that I think we form really easily of uh, assigning what I do to who I am. Oh yeah. So like what you do as a psychologist providing care for your clients is not the same thing as who you are. Well, as Brian as Dr. Brian, the psychologist. Even dad is not who I am. Right. Because I was Brian before I was a father. Right. I was Brian before I was a psychologist. I was, I mean, Brian is Brian. And uh, now I might get my theology wrong, but uh, I mean, I was ontologically changed with baptism, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so like, yeah. I'm always a baptized Christian. Oh, yeah. And you know, that's, that's one of the things like, We'll often joke about, oh, when, you know, God really kind of put this on my heart. Clearly. But if I have to imagine what that what that's like when God puts something on my heart, he doesn't call me Father Sam. Yeah, he calls me <laughs> Sam, right? He just calls me by my first name. That's it, just yeah. Sam. Like, because yeah. for, for all of that ontological reality, it's true. Yes. Absolutely. Like, yes. I'm a priest in everything that I do. Yeah. But- so often, I think, yeah, I would definitely associate more the 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 stuff I do, um, okay. the the things that fit in the job description of the priest. Yes, and kind of make that part of the identity, and yeah, need to separate that out. And it's hard to do. It's hard to do, especially when you're in the rhythm of life, and that is what you do. You that you carry out priestly duties, right? You know, I th- I think of moms. I think of moms who have a difficult time with empty nests. When their identity gets wrapped up with caring for those children for 30 years plus years or something like that, and the kids move out, then it's like, who am I now? I'm, I, yeah. I, am, I am not me. Or men, typically men at retirement age, right? right? That's why the suicide rate is so high for men at retirement age because they associate who they are with what they do. And if they lose that job, it's like, there's no me anymore. I'm worthless. I'm useless. So it's it's a common natural thing to like associate ourselves with our identity, but I think you know, for, for me personally, I keep trying to. That's so funny. 
I've reinvented myself so many times that I, I know that the, they're secondary characteristics. I mean, podcasting, look at you. I mean, you're podcasting. Yeah. You're a content creator. Right. So, so what's, yeah. the, what's the next I consider half? myself an influencer, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, I mean, you keep adding, adding tasks that weren't there right. before. You are, I mean, you, you're a priest and you're uh, a podcaster and you are, uh, you know, a son of the bishop. And you're a son of your parents, and you're a brother, and you're an uncle, and you're and you're Sam ultimately. Yeah, yeah. It's no. I mean, it's 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 amazing the the number of things that yeah we we add on. Mm. But at the end of the day, like it doesn't feel that un, unnatural to add on things. Yeah, um, especially oh, yes. like when they're when they're done the right way, when they're healthy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, like no, this this feels like perfectly normal. Of, of course, I would do this. <laughs> yeah. um, of course I'd step into this thing. Um, I look yeah. at like m- my friends and uh, I, I joke around, like I had, I had this one summer. It was, it was my first big wedding summer as a priest. Yeah. Um, and 10 of the 12 weddings that I had were for friends of mine from grammar school or high school. <laughs> um, and since then I've, I've surpassed my 12 wedding mark um, pretty regularly, but uh, no longer with friends. Um, right. Right, you know, right. Now it's with these couples get younger and younger. Dr. Brian, let me tell you, they're so young. <laughs> like, Wait, I feel so younger? old. The couples, like I feel so old talking to them now. I'm like, let me tell you, yeah. when I was your age, I used to think this. I know. Um, I know. But like, I watched a lot of my friends get married and sure? it made so much sense. But now I see them with their kids. And some of my friends have kids who are in high school. Yeah, that's crazy. Right. And I'm I'm looking at at them as parents, and it also makes so much sense. Yeah, like to see them doing that and and being parents, and then even like getting into the, some of the fields that they're in in their in their work and their professional lives. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, they're taking on a lot of stuff. It's not bad, right? There's there's something powerful about it. Yeah, um, I look at classmates from seminary and I see some of the things that they're doing, and I'm like, oh, that definitely makes sense. <laughs> Like, it's so good to see this priest doing this work and how cool. Makes yeah, perfect sense that he's but, the guy but it's doing harder, it. It's harder for the priest though, isn't it? I mean, you you have to collaborate with the bishop in terms of the work that you do. And sometimes the answer is no. What to, sure. Yeah. So, so that's that's got to be pretty challenging. But I mean, a good bishop will work with what your gifts are, right? Well, I hope so. <laughs> that's that's what we're always hoping for is that like that yeah. you have a bishop who who actually sees the gift yeah um but that can be hard too how much time do you actually spend with your bishop well exactly i mean yeah i i get i get some time um i'm i'm on a couple of different committees and councils and stuff so i i probably end up seeing him a little bit more often yeah um by virtue of that yeah um but yeah, I think I think most guys see their bishop at most once a month. Yeah, um, and I think that's a hard thing for a lot of our bishops too. Uh, for, yeah, for bishops oh, sure. who I think feel even more isolated than priests. You want to talk about a lonely life? Oh, I'm sure. Um, who needs community more than more than a bishop? But who's who's less able to have that community like on a natural level because he's again, no matter what, he's always the bishop. You think they call up other bishops? I think some of them do. Yeah. Um, but I, I think a lot of, I think a, my impression, so take that for what it's worth, yeah. um, but my impression is that a lot of our bishops are actually very 
isolated. Yeah, subsetting. Um, yeah, they might like at a at a regional meeting, they might see a few of the bishops and talk to them about different things. But no, my my sense is that they they don't really get a chance to talk to each other all that often, um, and sometimes even that they don't necessarily know each other all that well. Yeah, it, it's interesting. You you think about people who are at um, at the top of hierarchies and how lonely that can be being at the top of a hierarchy. What you what what you find is they become friends or associated with people who are at the top of other hierarchies, even though that hierarchy might be totally different. So, you, mm. you know, Jay-Z is friends with Tom Brady, you know, it's, it, it's, uh, you have people who are at the best at what they do or at the top of a hierarchy, they're leaders, you know, they're CEOs at, or, or they're a bishop or, I mean, even, even a priest relating to other priests or it's like just the loneliness of being like, that's a particular set of experiential circumstances to be, to have people, under you, report to you, that you direct and that you guide. And so you can't be too close with them. I mean, there can be, even between a father and a son, there should be a degree of friendship. There should be friendship. There should be connection there. But there's the it's in the room. The hierarchy is always in the room. And so to find someone that you can relate to, it's got to be someone else who's at a similar level to the in their respective hierarchy, right? Yeah, and I think the other the other challenge is if you're if you're if you're working, right. you know, so I'm I'm doing this job. I've got this stuff that I have to do to take care of. Um, you're looking for the people who are going to help you to execute that that plan, and depending on you know for a bishop their their particular style or their particular approach, they might be doing that with uh, the people who already occupy the offices around them. Yeah. Um, or they might be doing it like they, they might take the approach of the people who aren't necessarily in the building with them. You know, yeah. so you'll have some bishops who work more directly with the pastors. Yeah. And some bishops who work more directly with their chancery staff. Yeah. Both clergy and, and lay chancery staff. Um you know, you'll have some bishops who I, I remember reading about one bishop. I don't know if he's an active bishop, if he's deceased, I, I don't know, but he basically lived out of his car. Jeez. And he would just show up at a rectory and say, I'm staying tonight. Oof. And can you imagine, like, first of all, I'm like, I, I appreciate the idea that the, the bishop's going to be traveling around and just wants to visit parishes and everything, but like, could I get a, at least a day's notice to make sure the guest room is clean? <laughs> You know, like, yeah, I want to see like the filth that I live in. Let me clean up the house a little bit here. You know, yeah, like I, I don't mind welcoming a guest, but like, just give me the heads up that you're coming, right? For um, sure. But there was also like this this real simplicity that I I saw in it. So I, I'm I'm still kind of fascinated by the idea of an itinerant bishop who's just kind of makes the rounds of his diocese. So talk and, about detachment, though. Like you you you, wow. you, you at least why you're you know your bed and your sink and your toothbrush and, you know, like that does create, that minimizes anxiety. That's why we go on autopilot. We, you know, we like yeah. routines and patterns and habits. And so if he's saying, nope, I'm just going to live in this place of detachment and be in a different rectory every night. Woo. It's probably a yeah. holy man. There's, there's only so much time I can take on the road before I'm like, I just, I need, need to go home for a little while. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or at least I need I need to stay in one place for at least a few nights and just yeah. feel like I've settled a little bit. Even on a vacation, right? If you're away, it's like, 
you're always excited to come back home. Oh it's yeah. Like, oh, I, I get nice about two home. and a half days into the vacation. I'm like, okay, I'm done. Yeah. It's, it's I'm never actually done, but like, that's how I start to feel. Okay. I gotta, I gotta go do something. I need to, yeah. you know, the, that productive part starts coming out and no, I gotta, I gotta produce, I gotta do a thing. Yeah, the other thing that, that I think about with priests that must be challenging. I've talked to a lot of priests about this and, and I've always have sympathy for it is how you are a spiritual father and, and you're also just a business owner. Yeah. And so people that you hire and fire are also looking to you to be their spiritual father. Yeah. That's got to be really complex at times. I, I think there's a way through it, but I mean, do you find that like, do you have to articulate that? Okay. T- today I'm your priest or today I'm your boss. Like, do you, how do you navigate that? I don't know if I navigate it well. Um, yeah. You have to ask my staff if I navigate that. Yeah. Um, because I think most of us either do one or the other really well. Yeah. Um, like, I don't, I don't think I'm an especially good manager mm. of staff. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think I'm, I'm very good at that. I think I'm, I'm much better at the, at the being the spiritual father. Yeah. Um, and I think often when I try to be the manager, um, I don't do it right. Yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. because I don't do it right, yeah. it, it hurts me as a spiritual father for, yeah. for my staff. Yeah. Uh, but that, that's also one of the big challenges is how far does, does temporal responsibility, like the, the munis regendi, uh, if we're looking at, at the theology of the priesthood, your priest, prophet, and king, um, and, and king does not mean that everybody bows down in, in loyalty to you. <laughs> Right. That'd be kind of cool, but it doesn't work that way. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's that you have responsibility for the temporal ordering of, of your parish, of your community, sure. right? Yeah, yeah. Um, you're a steward, right? I mean, you're a steward of of funds. You're a steward of the grounds, yeah. everything. I, I mean, at, at the end of the day, being a steward of funds and of the grounds is a little bit easier because like, is that your money? No, then don't touch it. <laughs> like, or yes. what is that money for? That money is to is to pay for the grass to get cut and to make sure that the walls are painted. Okay, then spend it for that. Um, right. Yeah. Like that's that's an easy enough thing. Um, sure. But hey, I I want my staff to be able to function better together, or I need to challenge a staff member to do something that they haven't really done. Yeah. Or I need to correct something that was done incorrectly. Yeah. That's. Stuff, yeah, it's 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 not always a strong suit for us. But I think the same thing goes for like how many people when they go to school, um, and they they get a degree in something that's going to lead to them maybe running a practice of some sort. Like you become a doctor, a lawyer. Um, oh yeah. You, oh. Even even a teacher. Like how much is is really being given to you so that you can then run your business? Yeah. Or be a boss to somebody. Yeah. Yeah, we, I don't think yeah. we. I don't. We, we don't focus a lot of education. It seems on leadership. No, I think that's true in general. I think degrees prepare you very minimally for the workforce, and I think a lot of skills are developed over the course of your life after you're out there. You know, because yeah. you have to. Um, I mean, some people have natural gifts to you know, attend to all of it, but I mean, I, I was trained as a clinical psychologist. I wasn't trained in business, but to make any money. I have to learn business. I have to learn marketing. I have to learn, you know, 
all these other skills that people go to school exclusively for. But most jobs, if you're, if you're going to advance, you have to be pretty eclectic. I mean, priests aren't. How much, are, how much business training did you get in seminary? Yeah, that's that's like the number one question that we get. It's like, yeah. So did you have no? It didn't have any of this. But yeah, I can throw the same question at at a lot of people. How much yeah. business training did you get in terms of like running a company? Yeah, you know, you might have learned a lot about finance and how how trading works and how the how the markets work. But what did you learn about human resources? What did you learn about managing I mean, a company? Yeah, totally. About managing growth and like, I think actually. The, the playing field's a lot more level when you think of it in those terms. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. Because for a long time, I, 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 I was on that track of like, well, you know, they don't teach us the business side of things in, in seminary. And that's true. They don't. And I started to realize that instead of complaining that nobody taught me about that, I, I might be better off accepting that it's something that I don't know a lot about. Clearly. And there, that's something maybe you could there's learn. a skill there for me to learn. Yeah. I yeah. haven't learned it, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe there's a skill there for me to learn. Instead I started a podcast and you know. <laughs> yes. Right. Well that's you know, that's not math. That's more people. Exactly. It's more people. <laughs> what was the joke that uh the uh instead of going to therapy guys start podcasts? <laughs> <laughs> yes, or write books. Or write books. Get- but then that's a lot of that's a lot of typing and I don't know. Yeah, it is. I'd rather put in minimal effort and just sit here and talk. Yeah, exactly. Well, as as minimal as this effort has been, I'm really grateful for your time and uh, to have you come on the tangent today. This is this has been great uh, yeah. talking to a therapist on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> all my worlds are colliding. Yeah. Um. All right, Doctor Brian Violet. Where can people find the Catholic Center Show? Ah, uh, so I'm on all the platforms. It's um at Cath, not Catholic, but C A T H at Cath Center Show. Um, it's primarily a YouTube show. Um, I know that people have their preferred social media. There's there's X people, it's not even Twitter anymore, X people and Instagram people and X people, people, former people. <laughs> yes. There's a LinkedIn people. And and I you know, we we put stuff out on all of that, but it's basically just a funnel to get everyone to watch the YouTube channel. So go to um Catholic Center Show at, at Cath Center Show at YouTube. Actually, I don't even know how it was arranged. I think it's like YouTube slash at Cath Center Show. We'll put a link handle. in the show notes for people. Yeah, good. Because I, you know, I should probably know like where people can find me, but I <laughs> don't. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks so much for, for being on uh, and uh, really appreciate you giving your time to the tangent today. Oh yeah. And people got to come check out you coming on the Catholic Center Show. I can't wait. I'm really excited about this. Awesome. It's going to be fun. Hey, everybody, I hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to further support The Tangent, please consider subscribing or following on your preferred platform, following us at the Tangent underscore Catholic on Instagram, or even donating at VeritasCatholic.com. See you next time. God bless.